Land, a weekly land education talk show devoted to learning about land and farms, buying and selling, and ownership, especially for real estate agents and realtors. Hey, learn from the experts, guys. This is free land education. It's hard to get out there. Hi, my name's Lou Jewell. I'm an accredited land consultant, broker owner of LandPro Real Estate, along with my co-host, Teresa Martin, who's actually out on one of our properties this afternoon, this morning. So uh, just be us, just me today. Our new office is at 207 East Main Street in downtown Pilot Mountain, North Carolina. We serve all your real estate needs in western Piedmont, North Carolina, and southern Virginia. Just give us a shout. We'll help you out. All of our shows are dedicated to the Realtors Land Institute staff and their members. Their site is www.rliland.com. That's rliland.com. Now listen to me. If you're buying or selling land or farms, please go to that website. We are the top trained real estate brokers in the country. There's 2,000 members and we have 600, a little over 600 accredited land consultants nationwide. But we know how to play the game. We know how to save you money if you're buying. We know how to make you more if you're selling. So take advantage of that opportunity, www.rliland.com. Hey, we'd also like to thank our sponsor, landhub.com. Buying or selling land, landhub.com is the place to be. And also Acre Value, today's sponsor, is Acre Value. If you want to know who owns the field down the road of what is sold last year, the best place to research land all free is acrevalue.com. Our guest today is Chris Varner. Chris, welcome. Thanks, Lou. Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Where are you calling from? I am uh, just outside of St. Louis on the Illinois side of the river. Oh, okay. Cool. Well, um, I, I haven't been out there. i got to come out there sometime. Chris yeah, is, come see the Midwest a little bit. Yes, sir. Chris is, was, is the president and founder of AdVest Advisors, LLC. It was established in 2018 to serve the agricultural investment community. They work with both institutions and individuals to build out and implement ag investment strategies. And we're going to learn about that today, right, Chris? Yep, I hope so. Okay. Um, they have a proven track record to build and manage large-scale farmland portfolios. Prior to AgVest, Chris helped build one of the largest U.S. row crop portfolios in the history, and I want to hear about that, for some of the largest pension funds and investment banks in the world. Graduate of Southern Illinois and uh, Carbondale, got a B.S. degree in management, and then later went to Lindenwood University for your MBA in marketing. So uh, congratulations on that. So let's talk about your company and some of the services. Why? Why? Why do we need a company like yours out there? All right. Thanks a lot, Lou, for the introduction. So, so at AgVest Advisors, uh, we work to provide full-service sourcing and ongoing management services uh, to facilitate direct farmland investments for our, for our clients. So we specialize in working with institutions, family offices, and sophisticated investors in order to get them in the farmland market. So our exclusive specialization in farmland investments, we offer our clients uh, proprietary investment strategies um, all the way through acquisition negotiations. And then we have productive management plans based on their needs and um, what they're looking for in their portfolios. So our mission is to provide uh, superior gains for our investors within the low-risk environment 
of row crop farmland in the U.S. Uh, we provide this financial and personal success for our investors uh, by investing in the asset class uh, that has sustained over time with superior returns. Um, as you can see, USDA, uh, just as a side here, row crop, portfolio, row crop farmland, past 50 years is right around a 6% appreciation uh, across the U.S. from USDA. Okay. Um, so you put that on top of, we'll talk about more as we get into this, but you put that appreciation on top of a yearly cash rent, so you get a yearly cash yield out of the farm. And, you know, farmland is going to be somewhere, a row crop farmland at least, is going to be somewhere in that 9 to 11% return year over year. Um, and it's extremely low risk. And, again, we'll get into more of that as we go. Okay. Um, the farmland market's a little different from other real asset markets and real estate markets in that it's predominantly a private market. Um, and it can be complex to get into if you're not familiar with the space. So we help investors with that if they're looking to get into farmland, but they know nothing about farmland. We come into that a lot. And I've seen that a lot throughout the years where people, they, they've heard of farmland, they've read about it because it's kind of a hot topic now, but they have no idea how to go buy it. So, and what they're looking for when they do see something. So, we help people with that and uh, pension funds. And like I said, it's a largely private market. So a lot of times we'll see deals at AgVest that um, most people won't see just in the, on the websites or, or mailings or anything like that because a lot of times landlords in this market will give you know their, their family friend in town or their current tenant an opportunity to buy their farm uh, before they take it to the open market. And therefore, those guys a lot of times will bring it to um, a place like like us that has the connections with investors in order to buy that farm, and they can continue to farm it or get on it if they hadn't farmed it before. But they don't have to produce the capital to buy the farm. So we help uh, a lot of our farms that we've bought throughout the years. Uh, about sixty over sixty percent of the farms I've been uh, working with and bought over the last 10, 11 years have been these private type deals. So. Extremely private compared to other real estate markets. And what is, how does your back? I want to mention one thing first. Um, if you're not driving, follow along with us on his website, which is Advest, Advest Advisors. That's plural.com, Advest Advisors. Did I do it right? <laughs> yep, AgVestAdvisors.com. Ag okay, so follow along if you're not driving. So uh, there's a lot of information. I got pages here. Um, your background, your education, uh, your past experience, tell us a little bit about that and how that relates to what you're doing and how you got this started. Yeah, yeah. So I grew up um, in a small farming community right on the Mississippi River in West Central Illinois, a couple hours north of St. Louis. Um, and I worked at my dad's hog market since I could walk, essentially. So always been... Uh, in the ag space, and like I said, it was a farming community, so around around row crop farms all the time. Um, from there, I like we said, went to SIU Carbondale, got a, a business degree down there, came back to St. Louis, and started working at Monsanto out of college, out of undergrad, and I uh, got my MBA while working at Monsanto at Lindenwood University in St. Charles, Missouri. Um, and stayed at Montana for about five years or so, and then 
I started in the land investment space about 2011, and I joined a group called AgCOA. So AgCOA was formed in 2007-2008. It was a, a REIT put together by Goldman Sachs and Duquesne Capital. Okay. Um, and what they saw in the market at that point, Goldman analysts saw that there was going to be a run-up on the crop prices in the next few years, and they wanted to participate. So in order to do that, they put together AgCOA to buy uh, U.S. farmland and then rent it out to the local farmers um, and manage it. And their strategy was to buy and hold for five to seven years and then sell that as the run-up um, kind of capped off. And that's exactly what they did. So I joined in 11 as we were um, putting together acres across the U.S. And in 2012, uh, we sold that portfolio to CPPIB, which is a Canadian pension plan. And in that sale, they, they kept AGCOA as is, and we kept doing what we were doing for Goldman. And um, we amassed about 150,000 acres total across 14 states of the U.S. Uh, through our time at AGCOA, and uh, that was sold again as a portfolio in 2017 to the Gates Foundation, and uh, at that point, AGCOA as a company was dissolved. Uh, the Gates Foundation had the internal um, workforce to manage and source properties as they already have a large portfolio across the U.S., so um, AGCOA was dissolved in 17, and I started working for a farmland fund that was raising capital for a little while in 17. I got out of that and uh, essentially tried to recreate AGCOA and kind of do what we were doing then, a little different than a fund. Okay. So I started AgVest Advisors in 2018, and we uh, made our first purchase with my current investors in October of 18, and we've been been buying farms and renting them out to local farmers and managing since then. Is part of this program, is this sell lease back to the farmers? Is that how it works, or what's the what's the structure? Uh, sometimes they're sale leasebacks. Um, <clears throat> you know, sometimes sale leasebacks get a bad name in the in the farmland space right. because some groups um, take advantage of that, and they pay more for the farm than it's worth because the the owner that's going to lease it back will offer up a higher than market cash rent because he knows he's getting more than that from the, the cost of the farm. So sometimes they get a bad name because that, that happens, and then, you know, the, the tenant will get out of that original lease, and they walk, and then, you know, the investor is sitting there with a, an asset that they probably paid too much for. But right. we we have done some sale leasebacks. You just have to be careful in that. You know, the you're structure. doing them yeah. for the right reason, and yeah. the owner is doing them for the right reason to, you know, it can really help grow an operation. So if you have, you know, this instance happens quite a bit. So if we have a tenant that, um, you know, an auction comes up next to their home place that they've looked at for 30 years and they've always wanted to own it, it's, it's going to be for sale once in their lifetime and they want to go buy it, but it doesn't necessarily you know, meet our financial returns because the price is probably going to be a little higher than we would pay. We can go buy a farm from them closer to market price that sits, you know, 10 miles from their home place, and they get a lease set back. So they're still farming it, 
but it gives them some capital to go buy that piece next to their house that they've always wanted. So right. things like that, uh, we've done quite a bit of, of deals like that. Is that trend increasing or decreasing or, you know, with the current markets? In the current market, it's tough just because the private deals, and, and I'm talking the Midwest now for the most part. Sure. Um, you know, we've done a lot of private deals throughout my history in this, but, you know, those private deals, a lot of times, you know, they're getting a, a slight discount to market um, because they do want, you know, the guy to stay on the farm or they want their family to farm it still, but they want to cash out. But in today's market, the uh, the prices are, are so high that even slightly off-market doesn't make a whole lot of sense for a lot of investors in the Midwest today. So the last couple of years, I would say that trend is decreasing, but uh, it'll eventually come back around. With the uh, trends right now, uh, I mean, I've watched, I've been doing this 30 years and been a part of RLI for, well, since, uh, uh, golly, 1980, uh, 1997. But I've watched over the years these uh, land, uh, Midwest land uh, farm prices, you know, go from 2000 to 3000 to 4000 to 5000 to 20000 to 25000 You know, for Class A soil with no water, just basic land. I mean, yep. what happens in a downturn market? Does that stabilize and stay there, or does it lose value in, historically? Yeah, so your Class A land, which... I'm predominantly looking at for my investors, I'd say the Class A soil types in, in Illinois, Indiana. Um, you know, they're going to hold their value a lot more than the marginal kind of B minus B stuff will. That'll fall off a lot quicker. Okay. But I do think at some point, you know, the Class A stuff in Illinois right now is, you know, 16 to 20. Um, we were buying those same exact farms. Two years ago, two to three years ago, when we started, you know, you know, two to four years ago, at nine to ten. So I mean, the, the price has doubled, um, and it stayed there for a couple of years. So it's not a, a quick blimp in the in the radar. But at some point, I think that does come back down. And I'm not saying it's going to come back to nine or ten. I think that time is probably past us. But okay. I would think it has to come back down to you know twelve to fourteen, maybe, is your market in Class A here in a couple of years, but um, I don't see how it stays at that at that 20 level. It just doesn't make, doesn't make doesn't sense, make doesn't sense yeah. for anybody, really. So our guest today is Chris Bronner with AgVest Advisors. This is Let's Talk Land. We'd like to thank our sponsors, LandHub.com. Looking to buy or sell land, LandHub.com. Previews thousands of properties nationwide. That's LandHub.com. And AcreValue, today's sponsor. If you want to know who owns the field down the road or what, it's so for last year, the best place in research land, all free, is agvalue.com. So, Chris, why farmland? Why, why not other types of land, timberland or recreational land or all the other or commercial land, development land? Why farmland? Yeah, so, I mean, it's easy to tell the macro story of farmland. Um, as I got into this, you know, 10, 11 years ago, I hadn't really been subjected to it either and didn't know much about it. But as I got into it, it, it was very evident that the macro story of farmland is a very easy one to tell um, as you're talking to investors. So, I mean, if you start out just by looking at the global population, you know, it's expected to get, I don't know, upwards of 8 billion by 2030. So it's continually going up. 
And as that population goes up, your demand for food and resources goes up, obviously. And on the other side, your farmland acres are finite, and uh, we are losing acres every day uh, to industrialization, urbanization, different things. So if your population is going up and you need more resources as the population goes up, and then your arable acres across the world are going down, and then the U.S. especially, then uh, that supply demand there just makes for a, a very easy macro story of why buy farmland. Uh, it's going to be an appreciating asset long term, no doubt. And then if you look back, like I mentioned before, I mean, the historical returns at USDA has it at 6.1% across the 50 year average of appreciation in the U.S. Um, and then you add in the net cash yield you get from rent every year, so you're compounding that. Um, it's a very consistent asset, so especially in the last two to three years through the pandemic, um, you know, we've seen real assets, other groups of real assets have really struggled. So your offices, retail, um, you know, they are, they've really taken a hit. Right. And um, farmland, you know, is it's resilient. Uh, if you buy investment-grade farms, like we're going to show you, uh, like we look at, you know, your occupancy rate is 100%. And a lot of a lot of institutional investors don't get that right away. They're used to looking at these, you know, apartments and uh, office buildings and different things where they're never really going to hit 100% occupancy usually. And, if they, and especially in a downturn economic cycle, they're really hurting on that. And uh, you're always going to have a tenant on a farm if you buy, you know, the investment grade farm in the right area. So bunch of different reasons why why it makes a lot of sense again it's just it's just a new asset to the institutional class and um i think as people learn more about it there seems to be a lot more news on it here in the last few years and so i think it's gonna it's gonna grow pretty rapidly here in the next five to ten years i think how do you buy in chris how do you buy in it's not something that you call a stockbroker up right i mean is this publicly traded uh, how, how do you get involved? And, and also, what would be a minimum investment for an individual, not for a corporation? Or for both, maybe? Yeah. So, <clears throat> in different areas, so my main my main regions right now I'm working in, um, and I think, honestly, the best two regions of the U.S. to buy farmland in would be the Midwest and the Delta, the Mississippi Delta, which would be the states of Louisiana, Mississippi, and um, Arkansas. Right. In the Midwest, I classify as Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, and Michigan, um, and that's for my institutional investors. So some some people might not know that there are nine states across the U.S. that uh, institutions cannot buy farmland in. Huh. So there's anti-corporate ownership laws in uh, nine states, which includes some of the bigger farming states like Iowa, Minnesota, the Dakotas, um, Missouri. So I, I haven't done a lot of work in those states. Yeah. I've mostly been with institutional investors. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, but, but I mean, if you're talking in the Delta, um, which is mainly an institutional-type uh, market down there, so not a lot of growers and farmers are buying farmland in the Delta, which is different from the Midwest, where you're, my main competition in the Midwest is other farmers. And in the Delta, uh, it's just other institutions. So your land market is not going to take such big swings in the Delta because 
institutions are going to look at, you know, our model that we put together on the farm and you look at rent that is sustainable with our tenants and that, you know, whatever return you're looking for and that produces the number of what the farm is worth to us. Right. And that's, that's what we're going to go with. And if it's above that, it's a no, we move on to the next one. But a farmer, say in Illinois, if he's at auction and we have our number, then it goes above ours and we're, you know, we're out with that farmer again. He might be next to it and wants to buy it, and he's looked at it for 30 years. So he doesn't have that that hard stop on the on the top end, and that's right. when you get the 18 to 20 thousand dollar land. Yep. Yep. And the long answer here, I guess, is if you go to the Delta, you know, we can buy good farmland at you know 55 to 6 thousand dollars a tillable acre. So you know, you have a couple hundred thousand dollars and get some leverage on that. You can buy you know, a decent-sized farm down there um, in the Midwest. That's that's not going to get a whole lot just because of today's prices are, are a little higher. Right. Um, you know, the groups that I work with now, um, they're institutional investors and a couple individuals, uh, and that's kind of where I've focused my time. Um, there are a couple publicly traded companies out there that do similar things that I do. Okay. A um, couple other funds that, that do some other things, but I'm mainly working with, um, you know, if it's an individual, just them and um, whatever available capital they, they want to put towards a portfolio or even a single farm. And I uh, work with them on what they want and try to find find a deal in the right region and the right size for them. Is that shifting at all as time moves forward or will it shift? In terms of areas, and well, areas you talk about certain areas are better than others, um, and and there's some like you mentioned nine states that are locked out, uh, but the ones that are available, yeah. uh, is and, it, I mean, and individuals can still buy in those states. I just I haven't just done a lot because I've been focused in the other states more. Sure, I understand. But, um, so when I was at Agcoa, we had farms, you know, what we called the plains, which were Nebraska and Colorado. Okay. Um, there are some some good farms in those states, but water is becoming yeah, quite an issue yeah, out there. Is. Um, and then also in Nebraska, real estate taxes um, are are real issues. So you know in Illinois, which is uh, you know for the really class A good stuff in Illinois, in some counties we're paying up to fifty dollars an acre on real estate taxes today. Wow, that's significant. And um, last time I looked, a few years ago in Nebraska, some of those some of those counties were up to almost a hundred dollars uh, an acre on real estate taxes. Yeah. So um, that's a real issue in that state. And then you combine that with with water issues. And most of Nebraska, you need water uh, to grow crops. So in the eastern third, you can get by with without irrigation. And those are pretty high-priced farms, similar to Illinois. And then you get the other, the western two-thirds, I would say, of Nebraska. For the most part, you're going to need irrigation. And um, in Colorado, you'll need irrigation. And there's, you know, a lot of lawsuits right now and that that whole issue with water out of Colorado that that are ongoing out there. So that that region uh, has some questions. Um, You know, California, Pacific Northwest, uh, California for row crops, it's mostly veg and different things. And, again, water out there is a real issue, and yeah. uh, it's kind of a different market. The Pacific Northwest is an interesting market because it has has a lot of dairies, you know, Idaho, um, a lot of dairies out there, a lot of potatoes, um, 
it is, I would say that would be my third favorite region of the U.S. to buy in. But I just haven't spent, haven't spent a lot of time out there as we're working through, like I said, the Midwest and Delta. Right. Um, and then the Southeast, I think, is gaining traction right now. I think it's probably the fastest growing kind of institutional space in the U.S. just because they have, they have water, ample water, and uh, good climate. So I think that's, that's where a lot of stuff out of these other areas that have some issues on water are kind of migrating to that southeast, I think. What states would those be, Chris? Georgia and Florida for the most part. Okay. Don't get into North Carolina and Virginia, huh? We're more timber. Yeah, yeah, I would say that too. And I poultry. Guess. I mean, I, we did have some farms up in North Carolina at Agcoa, um, and we had some potato production up there with a couple of the big potato guys, so... I, I guess I would include that. South Carolina, um, there are some good areas. There's there's a lot of South Carolina that's pretty rough yeah. um, on farmland-wise, at least. Right. Soils down there. Yep. Do it. Yep. 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 It was under the water many, many, many years ago, and so was North Carolina, a lot of it, and Virginia. Um, about, go back. What's a minimum investment? Or is there a minimum I mean, honestly, if an individual has, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars, I would say, um, we can find them, find them a farm. Um, for the most part, you know, you're going to be looking above that. But, um, you know, a lot of individuals have, you know, maybe they had a family estate or, or something like that, or they're 1031ing out of a different thing and want to get into farmland. So they have you know, one or two million, that's kind of what I see more often. Okay. Um, and they want to buy a farm so we can buy them one and manage it for them, and, and that works great. Um, obviously, family offices are going to have a little more than that to, to allocate to farmland, and then pension funds and institutions probably even more than that. So um, really, we'll look at any case and try to work with, with anybody and what they have to spend and kind of what their goal is. We can definitely take a look at it. So this is one investor with one or more farms, right? It's not several investors like a like a, a co-op or like a uh, not like a co-op uh like a several it's it's, it's not like a tenants in common uh arrangement uh, yeah exactly yeah i'm working with individual investors or individual family offices i'm not i'm not pooling together money like some of the other ones i got you okay cool um you know we've got uh for example right now is the mississippi and the water level down there uh, Distribution, does that not affect uh, profits or the profits are lost at the other end, not at the farm end? Yeah, you know, that affects our growers um, in different ways. And, you know, how we like to um, get around that, I mean, there's always, a lot of times there's going to be some distribution issues. Um, I mean, where we're at in Illinois, we can get to a river terminal on most of our farms pretty easily. Uh, but like I said, now the river terminals are have an issue. They can't get all the way down to the ocean. So um, we like to have grain storage on a lot of our farms. So in cases like this, um, our growers can store their grain on farm. And, you know, once, once the issues are done, they can sell that grain later on. And usually um, the, the elevators are going to, you know, offer better deals. Uh, you know, say December, January, February, because the guys that don't have grain storage sold it right off the farm. 
So the supply is up during that time. So if you can have the ability to put it in your grain system for a couple months, then the supply is going to be, you know, a little lower to the elevators in those, those following months. And then, you know, our guys can get a bit better, better deal, deal yeah. elevators in because they've, yeah. they've held it on farm for a couple months. Interesting. There's a lot to this, isn't there? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's extremely simple asset class, but there's a lot to it, yes. But things can affect it. Different things can affect it. Weather can affect it. Water can affect it. Uh, you know. Yep. It's uh, it weather patterns and so on. That's uh, interesting. Uh, just with about a minute left in this segment, um, the world, I don't know if we can get into this one, but what's going on in the world with the, with the droughts and the fires and the wars and all the other stuff and, and – uh, is that not making our farmlands more valuable? Yeah, it is. I think I think that's part of the reason we're seeing this. Um, you know, this market stay up where it's at. There's a lot of a lot of stuff going on in the world that we're not sure about. Right. Um, people like putting money in. You know, farmland. They can tangible assets, so uh, they can they can see it. They can walk on it. They know they have it. So I think that's part of it, and it's also keeping the crop prices up and makes. You know, that's another reason why land prices are up because farmers have good crop prices, so they're they're into these auctions. You know, it's a big numbers because they're um, getting good prices at the elevators. So uh, I think all of that is definitely influencing both land prices and crop prices. So um, it's hard to kind of tell how that's all going to go. There's a lot of a lot of stuff up in the air along the world. That's the risk we take, isn't it? Hey, our guest today is yep. Chris Broder with. Ag Best Advisors. This is Let's Talk Land. We'd like to thank our sponsors, LandHub.com. Buying or selling land or farms, LandHub is the place to be. And AcreValue.com. AcreValue is the only website I need to research land. You need to go there, AcreValue.com. So I want to go back to your website and encourage people to go to it. It's uh, Advest Advisors. Uh, dot com ad best advisors plural dot com so uh, follow along there if you're not driving because there's a lot of information and we'll get into some of that here in this next segment um chris so what is what, what are the risks there's always you know profits and there's risk and that affects your profits uh your costs your profits your risk what are the risks that usually and how do you guys mitigate those risks yeah so as we get into that i think um First, we need to kind of differentiate. So farmland, you're talking U.S. farmland, you're talking either permanent or perennial crops versus our row crops. So anything I'm going to mention, what I specialize in, would be row crop portfolios or row crop farmland across the U.S. Okay. So your other side of that is, you know, perennials or permanent. So obviously your perennial crops and a lot of these out in Pacific Northwest, California, are going to be your trees and your vines. So growing, you know, grapes, nuts, and different things, and those are, you know, you're going to have some of your investment is going to be in the trees or vines along with the land. So those types of farms can produce a little higher cash yield, but they also have a little higher risk in that, you know, some of your money is tied up in a tree. So year over year, you have to keep that tree healthy and producing, and then you also have a risk of variety changes. So if the consumer's... Uh, change their attitudes towards, say, the biggest one of this is probably apples. So um, if the consumers change their attitude on a type of apple and that's what you have 
on your farm, then you're going to have to, you know, change that up and get into different varieties, which is a cost, big cost to the investor as they have to replace all the trees and then wait for those trees to become productive. So there's a higher risk in those type of farms. So what we specialize in are row crops. So that's obviously your corn, cotton, soybeans, rice, wheat, um, any of your annual crops. So for the most part, you're going to you're going to plant those in the spring, and then you'll harvest in the fall. There's some different things, winter wheat and different stuff. But for the most part, your spring to fall, the crops on the on the farm, uh, you know, from spring through summer into early fall, and then it's off. So winter, the just bare farmland. So less risk in that because you know there's no tree to keep healthy year over year. You are you know, starting with a brand new slate every year, and you can rotate so, the, you can rotate those crops too, right? Which you want to do? I know here in North Carolina we do the tobacco, the corn, the soy, basically. Okay, and there's yep. reasons you rotate it, you know, for retention of soil quality and nutriment. But um, but um, I, yeah, yeah, where we're at for the most part, the really high quality soils can take corn on corn for a few years in a right. row, but then you want to rotate in soybeans. So soybeans are a lot easier on your soil and actually put nutrients back into the soil, and corn will take a lot more out. So on some of your marginal soils, you, you can't go corn on corn. You're going to you're gonna struggle with productivity there, but um, some of the really good stuff in central Illinois, you can, you, know, you can get away with corn on corn for a few years and then throw a soybean rotation in there. In the delta, it's more about soil type. So your your clay-like soils down there, you're going to have more of a soybean rice rotation. Um, and then your lighter type loamy soils, you're going to have corn. Soybeans can be in that rotation also. And then okay. the really light stuff would be corn and cotton. Okay. Um, so that's what you're looking at down there. In the Midwest, it's more about your soil uh, quality to make sure you, you know, you're Soybeans are easier to grow on the, I'd say, more variable soils. How, how much does genetic engineering play in, 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 in what you're doing? And soils and, and, and low-till and fertilizers and herbicides and all those, you know, it's more than just going out there and planting a plant and watching it grow. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a big uh, advancement in the last, I'd say, you know, 15 years, 20 years maybe even, and I'd say your biggest advancement is in your seed biotech. Okay. So, um, you know, corn yields on average, I mean, in central Illinois right now, we have guys this year that will, across, you know, their farm will be 250 to 270 bushels per acre, which, you know, is, is not that uncommon anymore in central Illinois if you have good weather, and I know you know, take that back 15 years, and I don't know exactly what that number is, but I know it's a lot less than uh, 250 to 270. So I think your genetics and your seed companies are spending, you know, a lot of money trying to make that the best best seed they can make. And I think even in soybeans, I would say that that increases came in the last, I'd say, five to ten years. I think they were a little behind. I think corn was the, the one they spent the money on first and got those, Know, really up and going, and now here in the last five to ten years, we've seen that advancement in soybeans. Interesting. You know, 80 to 90 bushel soybeans now are not uncommon. Which, right. Uh, in five, ten years ago, you're talking 50 to 60. So 
uh, it is a big advancement, and the money spent in the space is uh, is really helping the yield. How much more can they do that? I mean, aren't we kind of peaking out, maxing out? Yeah, I, I would think so. I mean, I I don't know the exact <laughs> you know, number, but only uh, God knows, I guess. <laughs> you know, having you know having three hundred bushel corn in Illinois consistently seems like a a pretty big stretch, but. Uh, you know, the jump they've made to 250 to 270 is pretty big, too. So yeah, I, it is. I would think we, at some point, have to level that off. Um, that would that would make sense. But um, I, I'm not exactly sure where that level leveling off is. Yeah. My uh, mother's family uh, assembled uh, about 900 acres between 1909 and 1929, not contiguous. And believe it or not, we're six generations, and every inch of it's still in the in the uh, in the uh, family, so don't give us a call, okay? But uh, <laughs> but but I've watched just the corn, for example, years ago. You know, it was spaced, and now it's like an inch or two inches apart. I mean, it, the the density is crazy. Tobacco, you know, we used to go out there and suck at the tobacco. You don't do that anymore. And some of those stalks, you know, I, I was basically six feet tall. They might be five, and sometimes six feet tall. Now they're like three feet tall, but the leaves are bigger. Uh, the soy, yep. the soy, I've never seen it so high. I mean, and, and lush and thick, uh, you know, so just from observation and not being a farmer, uh, over the years, uh, you know, you can, you can vision, I mean, you can actually see the difference. So if you go back and take some of the old photographs, some of the old, uh, crop maps, uh, you know, that they used to take back in the fifties and sixties and compare them to today. And then you've got all this satellites. Uh, there's, there's a lot of companies and I've interviewed them. They do the satellite technology showing where the weaker soils are, or, you know, where the weaker plants are, and, and, and to uh, help the, help the uh, you know, help the farmer boost it. I know my cousin got involved years ago uh, uh, doing, uh, when the computers came out, and uh, golf courses, the company worked for, C.J. Smith out of Charlotte, and they were huge in, in, in golf course uh, building and maintenance, and, and uh, they came up with a friend of mine that went to uh, high school with, he's on the track team with me, and uh, they started implementing these uh, these uh, systems where they could run certain chemicals in the in certain parts of the golf course to improve it. And, and this was way back, but not, the technology out there is just phenomenal. Is that is that seen around the world too, or is, is that something we're kind of ahead of everybody on? I would say we're ahead, but um, yeah, it will catch up, you know, eventually around the world. But yeah, we would we would be ahead on that. And, and another side note on that, just on technology, I mean, that's what we're seeing now, too, is, you know, we went through a period there where a lot of kids that left the farm didn't want to come back, and, you know, you're getting into that, the older generations, and a lot of them are going to be done farming, sure. but I think we're seeing a lot more well, they're getting excited. kids yeah. go away to college and yeah. come back because the technology yeah. is... They can play. They can play their games out in the field. You know, they can yeah, sit I mean, there and watch their implements uh, run around with the GPS. And no one in it. Uh, you know, and and uh, and all this. Uh, oh, it's very exciting. Yeah, I mean, you sit in a combine now, and it, I mean, there's you know, watch TV, all kinds of monitors, and yeah. I mean, telling you all kinds of stuff, and it's know, like an airline pilot now. And you can, like you said, you can actually have drones now that you can go out and scout fields and look at soil more moisture when you have, I mean, just all kinds of technology that I think it makes it more interesting for the younger generation to come back home after college now. Yeah, and, very interesting. And, a lot of that. And, and are you guys using this technology in the, pro, in the pro, farms that you're involved in? 
Yeah, I mean, all of not not us in in general. I mean, I have a drone and obviously do scouting and stuff um, for the investors with that. But I mean, all the tenants we work with are you know up to speed into, yeah. into the technology. Yeah. Um, That's what I meant. I didn't, I didn't think your company did that. That's different. But yep. but the people that the uh, the, the tenants. Uh, those are the ones that you encourage, I guess, and support and, and spread technology if you learn about it and help them out. Because, you know, it's all about the yield. It's all about the money. <laughs> you know, that's, that's what it's all about, I guess. What, yep. other, what, other, what other mitigations do you do? Yeah, so on the row crop side, I mean, the way we do it, um, so if you're buying, you know, high-quality institutional-type grade farmland in the Midwest, say, um, you know, it's essentially risk-free. I mean, it's a lower cash yield than you're going to see in some other areas of investment. But, uh, excuse me, like I said, it's it's essentially risk-free because we're going to get, you know, all of your, your whole year's rent we'll get in February. And so you have the whole year paid for in February. And we do it that early because you'll have a couple months there. So in case you do have a tenant default, you have a good couple months usually to, to put another tenant in and in the areas we're going to be investing in, we're going to have plenty of tenants to, you know, the next day we'll have somebody on the farm, but you'll be able to get a market rent still because you have plenty of time um, and they'll step in. It'll be a seamless transition. So, um, and then on the farmer's side, I mean, if, so they're going to pay their rent in February and then say it's the drought that year and they don't have much of a crop, you know, they have crop insurance to mitigate their risk. Right. It's not like, not like we're going to bankrupt a guy because he pays us all in February and he doesn't have a crop that year because it doesn't rain right. in Illinois. Um, he has crop insurance to mitigate his risk and make him whole on that side. So really a, a win-win for everybody. And as, like I said, as, as close to risk-free as you can get um, on row crop farmland, you know, if you're, if you're buying in the right spaces with the right people. How much does the government uh, involved in, I mean, helping all this in their programs like the crop insurance and, yeah, so the government does subsidize the crop insurance, um, so they help the crop insurance companies. Um, so that that's where the government comes in, and they also are involved in farm service agency payments um, on different different things. But on the mitigation side, yeah, they are they're involved in the crop insurance. Yeah, and the and the, and the education USDA and others. Uh, that's that's uh, that's precious. I mean, that's very special what they do. There's some incredible programs. Uh, I've had some of those people on our show over the years, and it's uh, what they're doing, and especially uh, for the youth. Uh, and I'm looking at anybody out there, and if you know, for future shows, anything to do with youth youth and farming, I'm always interested in uh, having them on the show. So just a side note there, sorry. Um, foreign investors, what's going on there? The what? Foreign investors, what's happening there? Are you saying foreign investors? Yeah, are you are you doing foreign investments or your investors foreigners or percentage of no, what's no, happening so I, there? I don't. Um, like I said, I did invest for the Canadian pension plan, which right. technically is a foreign investor, but uh, you know, pretty close to home there. But no, I don't. I don't currently have any foreign investors. I know there's a lot looking. I know, you know, the Chinese are involved right. with some stuff. Um, you know, there's there's quite a few different groups out there that. They have some foreign investment, but uh, I myself do not. Okay, so your company doesn't cater to that. Nope. How is how is your company different than than 
I guess I'd call it your competition. I don't think you have competition. I think you're the best. But, uh, I mean, how are you different? What What's different in your firm and, and maybe some of the others out there? Yeah, so there's a lot of different groups out there that do something similar to me. I mean, and, and we're all different in different ways, I sure. guess. But the ones that are most similar to me are probably groups that um, – so I'm a – I work as a direct investment vehicle, and there's a lot of groups out there that are more of the fund structure. So say you have a pension fund that uh, has $50 million they want to put in farmland, and they give it to a fund. Um, so they'll write you know, $50 million check to this fund, and that fund then has the capability to go buy farmland. But the... The, the problem with that I see is, so once they write that $50 million check, that fund is charging them a fee on that of usually a half to three-quarters percent of of the committed capital. Okay. So, say, 75 bips of the $50 million, they're getting charged on up front. And so that fund has that $50 million. They know they're charging the client on it day one, so they need to get that money to work as soon as possible to have a return for their clients rather than waiting. And in my mind, that's just uh, not the best way to build a quality portfolio if you have the money sitting there and, you know, you have to spend it as quick as possible. Um, you know, as with any asset you're buying, it, it's not the best way to do good deals. And, you know, the, the thought, I think, among a lot of pension funds and, and bigger groups out there is that they don't have the, the internal manpower to pull off a direct investment strategy. And I would say, you know, we can, we can make it pretty easy for those groups to do it of direct investment. And in my mind, it's a much better deal for the investors because in, in my business, you know, at AgVest, we are, we're, essentially a pay for performance. So, you know, we will go out and source deals, um, negotiate on behalf of the tenants or on behalf of the investors. We'll do um, diligence during, you know, our diligence period if we do get it under contract and then management after. But we're not getting paid unless we buy something. And in the direct investment model, you know, that institution has the final say, yes or no. So, you know, I'll present them with all the facts and a nice proposal on what I think is a good deal. And then if they say yes, then we're going to, you know, negotiate that and buy it, and that's that's when we would get paid. But, um, you know, we're not getting that upfront fee like a fund does, and, you know, we're not also not having to go out and spend money day one because uh, because it's there. Since we're not getting paid on it, we can we can be patient and try to build you know the highest quality portfolio that we can, and that's that's what we've done for our investors to date. I like it. Um, what type of due diligence is is, is involved uh, from the uh, investor side and from the, your side in terms of locating the right property? So when we're looking at properties, I mean we're going to look at you know once we source a property. We'll look at, uh, you know, soil maps, um, and we're looking for different things in different areas in the Midwest. We're looking at uh, what they call a productivity index, which is just the quality rating of the right. soil and the different types of soils um, to know that we have at least good soils on the farm. In the Delta, we're just looking at types and, you know, the clay-like or the loamy type to know what kind of crops will grow. 
We'll look at historical imagery to make sure there's no problems on the farm uh, year after year. I mean, for the most part, a lot of farms at some point or other are going to have you know, some sort of issue during the years. Um, but if it happens year after year on the same spot of the farm, you know, you have an issue there on drainage or, or something else. So we'll look at that. Uh, we'll look at, you know, soil tests if we have them available to make sure the farm has the right nutrients and has been taken care of correctly. We'll look at the drainage tile maps so to make sure <clears throat> if there has been issues in the past, if they tiled the farm that it's now taken care of. We'll look at historical yields to make sure they make sense for the area. Um, so those are the type of, of diligence items that we'll do, you know, before a contract. And then post-contract, a lot of times your institutions uh, will do a survey, uh, which individuals will probably want to survey also, but then we'll also do um, sometimes institutions want um, an appraisal during diligence. Uh, some don't. And then also some institutions will do an environmental phase one just to ensure there's no uh, major environmental issues on the farm. Right. Interesting. Okay, I'm going to switch roles here a little bit. Since this is a show for real estate agents and realtors, but it's for everyone, what role does the realtors play in your business? Yeah, so, I mean, I am... I'm a licensed uh, real estate agent, obviously, and so, you know, when I can source farms privately, then I, you know, take take care of that. But I do have, you know, quite a few real estate agents that I touch base with, uh, you know, quite a bit uh, in the different regions because they know I'm constantly looking uh, to buy good farms in good areas. So, you know, real estate agents are you know, the bigger network you can build, the better off you are. In sure. It. So, you know, if I can touch, you know, 50 people, but then each real estate agent I, I get a hold of can touch, you know, an extra 50 people, that's that's the best news for everybody. And even if we're doing deals together, um, you know, we're still getting deals done. So um, that's that's the best way I've found to, to kind of make this work is you can't, can't do it by yourself. Um, if you're going to do it correctly, you need – need a lot of help in a lot of different areas. So I, I utilize real estate agents quite a bit throughout the U.S. Okay, so here's what I'm going to say. For you real estate agents out there, you may want to go to this website, agvestadvisors.com, and check Chris's company out, and you may have an opportunity uh, with uh, some of your listings, and I'm sure it would be welcome, right? Yes, exactly. All right. Um We've got probably another uh, six minutes left here. Where do you want to go? Is there anything we haven't talked about that you want to cover? No, I think, honestly, we've uh, we've about hit everything I had on my list. Okay. Um, if you have something else, we can... Oh, I always, always have something else, Chris. <laughs> 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 on your website, there's a chart that I thought was very interesting. It's Farmlands at a Glance. And it's stats about farmland. Is it okay if I cover that? Yeah, that's fine. I thought this was interesting. And I don't know how current these stats are, but uh, it says there's 8 billion global populations expected by 2030, okay? And then there's increasing population means of more demand for food and resources. Well, that's a common sense thing, but the stat is, you know, and most people are aware of that. But farmland acres are finite and continue to decrease due to industrialization, urbanization, 
and other things like, um, you know, droughts and, and fires and, 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 and floods and tornadoes and all that stuff. Investors always look for uh, asset classes that are stable throughout economic cycles. And that was real interesting at the beginning of your show, how you pointed that out, Chris, that uh, farmland investment is, is, is pretty stable. Um, that last track that my granddad, it's not a crop, it's a timber track, was 300 acres that he bought in 1929 uh, with a small little river called the Fisher River Boundary. And uh, he paid $3,500 for it, Chris. That's about, what, $11.77, 78 cents an acre? The timber's been yeah. har- the timber's been harvested twice. could be harvested probably in the next five years or so. And we had uh, agricultural and timber deferments in, in North Carolina. And, uh, and they reduced the... Uh, the tax value, and then tax at the current rate. But I think last year the taxes were $280. If I put it on the market today, it's probably uh, five an acre, six an acre, uh, around a million and a half. And if you run the number from 1929 to today, uh, you're looking at between 6 and 7% uh, annual appreciation. What's wrong with this picture? No, it's just consistent. Uh, yeah, it's and it's a shame not more people understand this, but that's what this show's about to help people do. But the USDA, which I follow, you know, they do an annual report usually in what June, July, uh, where they compare uh, pluses and minuses and values of cropland and pasture land, uh, for example. But they're saying in the past 50 years, farmland has appreciated approximately, and exactly what I'm saying, about 6.1 percent per annum. So that's, uh, I gave a live example of that. Uh, and then farmland has uh, negative, um, I'm sorry, the light's not good here, correlations with, uh, with uh, equities. Farmland shows consistent return in time and market volatility provides consistent income and capital appreciation. So did you not mention earlier, just, just for my, my mind, uh, that you're looking at some of these these uh, portfolios generating around nine percent. Yeah, so if you're looking at you know if you just take six percent uh, appreciation, you know if you're looking long term, so historical six percent appreciation, and then you know in your row crop portfolio across the different areas, um, you know you're going to net somewhere in three to five it matters kind of you know how times are and uh what what cycle we're going through so you're somewhere in that nine to eleven percent was is what i would say so for the listeners out there the size of individual versus the portfolio is in consideration choosing crop choose uh, crop choice among different crops so as an investor I don't care about corn. I like soy or whatever it is. I, I can I can uh, uh, I can steer you. I guess would be the word as to what I'm looking for, and you, you accommodate them based on that. Is that correct? Yeah, and for the most part, I mean, in the Midwest, corn and soy are going to be together. Right. I really pick one farm or the other, but I have had. I mean, I talked to you know guys and out east actually that you know their dad had a rice farm when they were young somewhere and they wanted to own a rice farm so right. obviously then you're going to the delta you're going to look for the heavier clay soils and you can have a rice farm so there are instances like that but a lot of times i mean you're going to be able to combine 
you know, the the different crops. You'll be able to grow more than one crop on the farm, but right. you can definitely steer in the different regions and different soil types on the, which one if they're really wanting one of them. Yeah, I did a show with a, a realtor actually in Brazil in northwest northeast uh, uh, northwest part of Brazil, and he was talking about how they have the two crop season uh, where they can do soy and harvest it and corn in a twelve month period, and there are very few places that that you can do that. So I thought that was interesting. You do not go outside the U.S., right? Uh, no, I have not. Okay. And then time time frame and time to deploy versus time and hole. And that's a big part of your, your uh, strategy, right? Uh, that, that's critical, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. The time to deploy is a big one just because, you know, the time, you know, you, if we have it today and we have to spend it tomorrow, I'm not going to guarantee we're going to get the best deal. So right. if we have some time there, um, and a lot of, and there are instances where we do have kind of a tight timeline because there are, you know, 1031 exchanges where guys are, getting out of another investment and yep. going into farmland and there's a certain time frame you have to get back in to qualify for that but um but yeah the deployment is is pretty big in that you know if we have a little more time we can look and That's find it. the right deal rather than the next deal and um you know the the time you're going to stay in also is is a bigger deal because you know right now if you're looking to buy something especially in the midwest if you're looking to buy and and hold for a year or two and get out, I, I'd honestly probably advise against that because um, I can't can't see that 6% in the next couple of years being true. But if you're looking to buy in the Midwest and you're going to hold for, you know, you know, five, ten years and, you know, don't really have a date picked out but you want to hold it long term, then I think it's a really good investment. Okay. Our guest has been Chris Broner, founder and president of Advest. Agvest Advisors, Chris, how do they get in touch with you? Yeah, so you can uh, call me at uh, 618-520-7022, or you can email me at cbronner, C is in boy, cat, B is in boy, R-A-W-N-E-R, at agvest, A-G-V-E-S-T dot C-O is my email, and then... Uh, you can go to the website and has all that contact information at uh, agvestadvisors.com. Thank you for joining us, Chris. You did a great show today. Stay on with us, okay? Thank you for joining us all today. Right, let us thank you. Let us know how you like the show. All questions and comments are welcome. This show is for the public and most importantly for real estate agents who do not have a source for real estate education. All of our shows will be found on www.letstalkland.net, Spotify, and Podbean. My email is lou at mylandpro.com. My cell phone number is 336-669-1405. Our website is www.mylandpro.com. Rodney, how do they get in touch with us here? Well, Lou, then give us a call at 336-983-3111 since our website is uh, down right now. But okay. Hopefully we'll have it up and going yep. real soon. And they can download the Simple Radio app and hear us anywhere in the world only happy music. And only happy music. Hey, we'd like to thank our two sponsors, too, uh, LandHub.com and AcreValue. Um, also, we won some nice awards, right? Yeah, that's right. Seven years and hopefully eight years coming up here pretty All right. soon there. And you won a nice award. Uh, yes, the uh, DJ Announcer of the Year Award. Well. Hey, thank you for joining us today. We'll see you next week.